Father, we pray that you would humble us as we approach your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to uh, be ready to receive uh, what we read, what we hear. We pray that we would respond uh, in true faith and that your spirit would guide us and help us. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've uh, ever been surprised. Uh, maybe you're expecting one thing to happen and things unfolded in a, in a different way than what you anticipated. I grew up in the relatively small town of Bentonville, Arkansas, so moving across the world to, to Asia, to these global cities like Shanghai, a city of, of 25 million people, and then to Bangkok, a, a puny 16 million people, uh, has brought with it its fair share of prizes, uh, surprises. Uh, so just for, for example, uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, in Thailand, uh, the Thai people celebrated a very important holiday, Songkran. Uh, the whole country turns into one giant water war. Uh, it's very fascinating, very surprising, and you think I may be exaggerating a bit, but if you step outside during this holiday, it doesn't matter if you're a foreigner wearing a, a business suit or a mother with a newborn in her arms, gangs of children and adults, including the elderly, are roaming the streets ready to soak you with water. Uh, not exaggerating at all, this is exactly what it's like. Uh, and it goes on for three days. Nobody is safe. In fact, uh, I walked into my Thai class. So I'm, I'm learning Thai. I have a backpack on. I have my Thai books in my hands. My computer's in my backpack. Didn't matter. My teacher drenched me with water before the class even started. Uh, and this is just what you do during Songkran. Uh, the whole country is one giant water war. It's very surprising. Uh, I've lived in Asia since 2015. One of my absolute favorite things to do is read the Bible with people who don't know much about Christianity. I love uh, seeing their surprise as they respond to God's Word, as they, they learn about Jesus perhaps for the first time. You know, in, in Thailand, most of the people there are Buddhist. Uh, many of them, especially in Bangkok, have at least heard about Jesus. Uh, they've heard about Christianity. But I think all of them are surprised when they begin to read the Bible with a Christian for the first time, and, and they see that Christians actually believe that Jesus is both God and man, that He is King over all people, and that all people should therefore submit to Him. This is something that's quite surprising to them. I love watching people read God's Word for the first time and, and begin to see and understand some of those things. I love watching them marvel at Jesus. I love watching their surprise at Jesus. Jesus' 12 disciples were men who lived with Jesus, they, they traveled with Him, they heard His teaching firsthand, and yet the Jesus that they knew so well so often surprised them. And even the crowds of people who followed Jesus, they often found His teaching so difficult to understand and grasp, they were almost always surprised by Jesus. And I think Jesus can surprise us too, even today. I wonder if you've been surprised by Jesus recently. Who, who is this man, Jesus, that we call the Son of God? Christians can easily answer that question, and yet even after years of following Him, we're still often surprised by Him. Well, the passage I want to look at with you this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 
to chapter 9, verse 8. So you can turn there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to chapter 9, verse 8. And in this passage, the disciples must finally answer this question, who is Jesus? It's a question that they have to answer for themselves. And from their answer, we learn not just the identity of Jesus, but we also learn the kind of disciples that Jesus' followers must be, what what we, we must be. And I think the answer offered is perhaps unexpected. It's surprising. It was to the disciples, it was to the crowds who followed Him, and perhaps it may be surprising to us as well. So, just as we turn to this text, uh, I like to give a main point, uh, what I think is the main point of the passage, which hopefully also is the main point of the sermon. Here's what I think is the main point of Mark 8 and 9. Following Jesus is costlier than you think. Following Jesus is costlier than you think and more glorious than you can imagine. More glorious than you can imagine. Three points for us this morning that I want to consider together. First, a disciple must confess the Christ. A disciple must confess the Christ. We're going to see that in Mark 8, verses 27 to 33. And then second, a disciple must count the cost. A disciple must count the cost. We'll see that in verses 34 to 38. And then finally, a disciple must consider the crown. We'll see that in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. So, a disciple must confess the Christ, he must count the cost, he must consider the crown. Let's consider this first point. A disciple must confess the Christ. And I'll read from chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. It says this, And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered Him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Well, the disciples watched in astonishment as Jesus brought a child back from the dead. They saw Jesus command a paralyzed man to to walk again. More recently, they saw Jesus feed several thousand people with a a few loaves of bread and, and some fish. Jesus demonstrated authority over the physical world, over sickness, even over death itself. And along the way, the disciples have been thinking, Who is this man, Jesus, that that can do these kinds of things? They've been slow to understand Jesus. But now, in in perhaps the most significant portion of Mark's gospel, Jesus forces the question, who do people say that I am? You can see the, the crowds are not sure. So, just look at verse 28 again. The crowds apparently thought that Jesus was some kind of prophet of old. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a reincarnation idea, but maybe just a, a, a prophet sent back to complete the work. But then Peter, speaking on behalf of all of the disciples, he doesn't waver. 
Look at verse 29. You are the Christ. What does that mean? To the disciples, Peter's confession here was glorious. When Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, he is confessing that that Jesus is the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah, the King sent from God to usher in a new kingdom. Now, the disciples didn't know everything about this specific idea at this point. There are many things about Jesus that they still were not sure about, things that to come that would surprise them, that would grieve them, and eventually uh, bring them unimaginable joy. But they do know now that He is the anointed King of God. The signs pointed to it, His, his teaching confirmed it, his, his miracles proved it, and they confessed it. And note here, Jesus doesn't deny it. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, Uh, This is a church that welcomes all people. I know that they're glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I want to encourage you to to think carefully about the question that that Jesus asked His disciples. Who do you say that I am? I want you to think about the disciples' answer here. So if you think about it, Jesus' question and the answer that He gives is completely self-centered unless Jesus really is who He claimed to be, the King of the whole world and God Himself. I live in in Asia, as as we've talked about already, and one of the things that I often tell people is that Jesus doesn't claim to be the God of Westerners. Christianity doesn't claim to be a Western religion at all. Jesus doesn't even claim to be the King of Christians only. Jesus claims to be the King of every person, and that includes you. So if you don't know much about Jesus or you haven't considered His claims very carefully, I just want to invite you to, again, think about this question, maybe study this question with the Christian who brought you this morning. Or if you just came on your own, you can talk to Dave or one of the other pastors. They'd love to read through the Gospel of Mark with you and help you think about this question a little bit more. And yet at the same time, like the disciples here, you don't have to understand everything there is to know about Jesus or about Christianity in order to find forgiveness for your sins. You can submit to Jesus as King and find forgiveness even this morning. All you have to do is confess that Jesus is the Christ, like we see here, who died to to take away your sins and who rose from the dead and defeated sin and death for good. Let me just encourage you this morning to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Well, in verse 30, Jesus commands the disciples not to tell anyone about His identity. Uh, All that's going on here is Jesus' need to instruct people on the true purpose of uh, His identity as the Christ. People falsely thought that when the Christ came, He would immediately destroy Israel's enemies, set up an earthly kingdom, and in reality, Jesus' purpose was to suffer and die for sinners. And so, Jesus needs time to kind of redirect people's understanding. These false views about the Christ are exactly why we have this mind-boggling exchange between Jesus and Peter in verses 31 to 33. So, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the King sent from God, and yet the first thing that he does after that is rebuke Jesus. Kind of interesting and surprising. But isn't that so often like us? 
Uh, usually people don't mind being under the authority of God if the authority of God conforms to our expectations, to our desires, and to our image. Does your confession of faith in Jesus include His right as God to rebuke you, to contradict your false views and assumptions, to correct your way of life? Look at how Jesus responds to Peter there in verse 33. Jesus rebukes Peter. And you can see the, the strong language here. It says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Friends, it is satanic to create a God or to create a Christianity in your image. And it is Christ-like to call out and rebuke settled false beliefs. Now, we don't want to wrongly rebuke, as Peter does here, uh, but we do need to recognize that sometimes serious and perhaps even severe rebuke is necessary, as Jesus does here. What is the difference between wrong rebuke and Christ-like rebuke? Well, number one, before we rebuke another believer, we need to ensure that their sin or their false belief is clearly in violation of God's Word. Notice in verse 32 that Jesus spoke plainly about His mission to Peter and the disciples, and it was that plain teaching that Peter rejected. One of the reasons why my church has a statement of faith, why Oakhurst has a statement of faith, is because a document like that generally marks out the plain teachings of Scripture that we are to, to hold one another to. But another thing that we should see here is we need to recognize that rebuke does not equal rejection. You see that? Jesus calls Peter Satan here. Now, that's pretty strong language. I'm not sure that we should necessarily use as strong of a language. Jesus has insight into people's hearts that, that we don't generally have, uh, so we need to be careful. But what is perhaps most remarkable is that even after saying that Peter's impulses are satanic, just a few days later, as we're going to read in a moment, Peter gets to participate in this incredible uh, vision of the glory of Christ. He gets to see Jesus' glory and power on display. Peter gets to be one of three individuals who gets to see that. So when we rebuke, we need to be the, the kind of people that uh, are rebuking with the goal of restoration, ready to forgive and restore rather than reject. And then number three, we all need to be the kind of people that are ready and even eager for God's Word to rebuke us regarding our own sins, false beliefs, and wrong ways of living. You know, if our demeanor is that God's Word has authority to rebuke us, we're more likely to approach other people with great humility as we confront them on things. I wonder, when you come in on Sunday mornings, do you Come ready to sit under God's Word with the expectation that God's Word has the, the authority to confront you and to change you, to change your heart, to change your mind. I know Dave isn't just trying to stand up week in and week out to preach his ideas. Certainly, that's not what I'm trying to do this morning. We're not trying to give you sermons on how to be a better husband or how to control your finances. We, we want to preach through books of the Bible because we want God's Word to stand over us and confront us and change us as we are confronted with it. So, friends, whether in preaching or through the rebuke of your spouse or through the rebuke of fellow Christians, 
let me encourage you to humbly receive godly rebuke. Allow God's Word to stand over in authority over you. We need to move on, but, but one final point from, from these verses. Look at, look at what, all, what started all of this rebuking in the first place. Look back at verse 31. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and He must be killed, and after three days rise again. Notice that word must there in verse 31. That word's very important. Why does Jesus use this word? Jesus is telling us that He's not merely predicting what will happen. Jesus is planning to die. He's saying, this is why I came. I intend to suffer and die for sinners. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. These words reveal that, that Jesus came to substitute Himself for sinners. That little word must tells us that the only way that our sins can be forgiven, our sins against a holy God can be forgiven, is through the suffering and death of Jesus on a cross. So whatever problems Peter had with Jesus' words, today we now know that this is the central truth of Christianity. Peter's confession that, that Jesus is the Christ, coupled with the truth that, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, this is the paradigm confession for every person who wishes to follow Jesus. Every Christian who has ever lived, every Christian who lives today, started their Christian life by confessing this claim as true. It's this confession that, that binds us together with every other Christian around the world with all of our brothers and sisters around the world. I once spoke with a, a new Christian in China. He's a new believer. And he told me that one of the reasons that he was compelled by Christianity, one of the reasons why he came to faith in Jesus is because as he traveled around to, to different churches around the world, he noticed that the churches around the world are remarkably similar. You know, there are some differences, of course, some cultural differences and things like that, but they're remarkably Similar, all true churches confess that Jesus is the Christ, and that confession shapes their identity. True churches look similar to one another. My church this morning looks very similar to Oakhurst Baptist Church. We confess that Jesus is the Christ through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and in the lives of the members that seek to follow Him. I think this is a good reminder for us. Uh, the church that I pastor is made up of people from uh, maybe eight or nine different countries, so uh, we're, we're very different from one another in many ways. Uh, and I know he, even here at Oakhurst, there are differences among the members here. But the confession that we share is so much greater than the differences that we don't. Our common confession that, that Jesus is the Christ, that is a greater bond than all the things that divide the world. And so may we, may you, be characterized by a life that lives above many of the divisions and distractions that characterize the rest of the world, and instead live with love towards one another, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ who share this same confession. Well, we see here that a follower of Jesus must confess the Christ. Number two, we need to see that a follower of Jesus must count the cost. Let's read verses 34 to 38. 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. On the previous section, the disciples gloriously announced what they had hoped for all along that Jesus is the Christ, the King from God. That's really a, a mountaintop experience for them. The realization had been there, but, but now they say it out loud, and they're wondering, how is Jesus going to respond to what we've just said? They're curious to know what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus does something surprising, something unexpected. He says He must die, but He doesn't stop there. Look again at verse 34. Notice that Jesus turns to the crowds, to all the people that are following Him, and He explains what it means to really follow Him. If you want to follow Me, Jesus says, you must deny yourself. If you want to follow Me, Jesus says, you must take up your cross. If you want to follow Me, Jesus says, you must lose your life. Now, the cross that, that Jesus speaks of here, uh, it's, not a, it's not a pretty wall decoration that the disciples hung on the walls of their home. This is the instrument that criminals were killed on. It was reserved for the most notorious criminals. It represented horrible pain and suffering and death. You know, people didn't like to think about it, They didn't like to talk about it, and they certainly never imagined themselves having to die on one. But look at what Jesus says again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, following Jesus requires being hated, persecuted, and maybe even killed. I want to tell you about a friend of mine who was a member of our church uh, when we lived in Shanghai, and uh, we'll just call him T. Uh, T is a Christian now, but T grew up a Muslim. And a couple years ago, he began reading through the New Testament. And eventually, T went back to his hometown where, for whatever reason, the police brought him in for questioning. We don't exactly know why they did this, but, but after they questioned him, They beat him, and as T received blows to his head, his mind turned to the Jesus that he had been reading about in the New Testament, and he realized just how sinful the world was. He realized that in Christianity, he had a Savior who himself had been beaten unjustly, and in God's incredible kindness, while T was being beaten, his heart was awakened to the truths of the gospel, and he trusted in Christ in that very moment. He believed. He confessed Jesus. And uh, T was eventually released. He came back. He joined our church. We were able to baptize him. And a few months later, he was taken in by police a second time, this time perhaps because of his conversion to Christianity. Now, he was very scared. 
He wanted to withdraw into his apartment. He wanted to stay away from church for a while. Uh, He wanted to call off meeting with other Christians. And so I sat down with him soon after this, and we read this exact passage together. And we talked about how he really only had a couple of options. Number one, he could abandon the faith and hope that any kind of persecution would end. He could do that. Or number two, he could, in the face of potentially greater persecution, push into the church, allow us to come alongside of him to encourage him and teach him and walk him through whatever persecution would come to him. He could look to the suffering of his Savior and recognize that that Christian suffering is difficult, but according to Jesus, it's expected. My friend T had a choice to make. He had to count the cost that day of following Jesus. Friends, make no mistake, when Jesus says that if you want to follow Him, you have to deny yourself, and you have to take up your cross daily, and you have to be ready to lose your life, when Jesus says these things, He's not kidding. This isn't a joke. He's telling them to count the cost. And you can bet that many people in that crowd walked away on that day. Because this is not the kind of teaching that will guarantee you full churches, but it is the kind of teaching that by God's grace and through His Spirit will save sinners, will bring them to faith in Christ. So I wonder in your own evangelism to your friends, to strangers, friends, in your own evangelism to your children, do you tell them to count the cost of following Jesus? Do you include this warning? Jesus doesn't shy away from telling the crowds this truth, that there is a cost to following Him. Now, we want and pray for many people to come to faith in Jesus, but we want to win them to this Jesus, to the Jesus of the Bible. And so, friends, in your evangelism, make sure that you, like Jesus does here, tell people to count the cost of following Christ. Contrary to to popular belief, following Jesus is hard. This is the reality of following Jesus in a fallen, sin-stained world. Whoever loses their life, Jesus says, for my sake and the gospels will save it. And there are Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are losing their life for the sake of Christ, even today. I recently read about a, a couple uh, in Somalia. Uh, they arrived there in the 1990s, and soon after they got there, they learned that there were 150 followers of Jesus from Muslim backgrounds. Eight years later, there were only four Christians left alive. And it would be wrong, I think, if we viewed these persecuted Christians as belonging to a separate category from us. They're not a separate category. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our prayers should be ringing up to the Father in heaven for them. Don't don't underestimate the importance of your prayers for persecuted believers around the world. Christians are being persecuted at the hands of governments, the hands of their families. Thankfully, in Thailand, uh, Christians are not typically persecuted in any way by the government, but certainly there is extreme pressure on them by their families. We can pray that God would help them to persevere, 
that God would give them strength and even joy, and that many would come to faith as a result of their witness. It's a great thing to pray about next week in your missions gathering. Many Christians are, are going to take up their cross, and they're going to die a literal death for the sake of Jesus. Um, but, you know, more than likely, those of us in this room are not going to have to die for Jesus' sake. But this passage does call on us to count the cost of denying ourselves and taking up the cross of self-sacrificing service to Jesus for His sake. Just scan back through those verses again, verses 36 to 38. You just scan through there and you can see that, that Jesus is saying that Christianity is serious. Uh, you can't live as a disciple the way that you watch Netflix, right? Just kind of sitting on your couch, scrolling past anything that's unpleasant until you find something to your tastes. If you want to follow Jesus to the Father's glory, you have to walk the path that takes you directly through the cross. There is no such thing as a, a part-time volunteer work Christianity. There's no such thing as a Christianity where God plays a minor role in your life. There's no such thing as a, a consumeristic Christianity where you get to substitute Jesus' whole life demands for more pleasant and less harsh ones. That Christianity doesn't exist. What Jesus says in these verses is not one way of following Jesus among many other ways. These are eternal imperatives. These are commands to us. We're being called to a serious Christianity in which we deny sin, deny self, deny our pride, and Jesus becomes the center of our affections and our goals. And we join the ranks of those despised by the world and follow the path that He has chosen for us even if it isn't the path that we would have chosen for ourselves. Let me just give you one specific application of this. Uh, the church that I pastor in, in Bangkok, it's, a, it's an English-speaking church there in, in, in Bangkok. And so I pastor a lot of missionaries. And I went to seminary with a lot of individuals that wanted to go in, into ministry. And one of the saddest things is how many individuals grew up learning the gospel from their parents learning the Bible from their parents, but who tell me that their parents are angry, upset, or cause problems for them when they express a desire to go overseas as missionaries. Parents, you need to know that if you continue to sit under the kind of biblical teaching that you're receiving here at Oakhurst, and if you continue to teach your kids about Jesus, don't be surprised if God calls them to do the things that loving God causes people to want to do, namely, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Maybe even take your grandchildren to the ends of the earth. Parents, God may call some of your children to be missionaries. I pray that He does. Are you ready for that? Have you counted the cost of that? Are you ready to... to twist Isaiah's phrasing a little bit to say, here they are, Lord, send them. Send them. Are you ready to do that? I pray that you are. Because what I'm describing, friends, is costly. Christianity is not easy. I know that many of you know this already. Some of you are experiencing, even this morning, the difficult cost of following Jesus. 
Maybe your sorrow is great as you bear the cross for Jesus' sake. And so for you especially this morning, I I want you to know that, that counting the cost is not the only thing a follower of Jesus does. Remember the main point earlier. Following Jesus is costlier than you think, but it is also more glorious than you can imagine. That's our third point. A follower of Jesus must consider the crown. Let me read from chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, there's this hint of a coming glorious reality. In the middle of truly difficult teaching, Jesus gives this hope. The kingdom of God is going to come with power. Jesus promises that some standing there are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom come. And then immediately the story moves to this rather incredible scene in the life of Jesus. He's with Peter, James, and John on this mountain. His face all of a sudden is altered. His clothes become dazzling white. His glory is displayed to them, and God the Father speaks. I think the promise that Jesus makes in verse 1 is connected with the events of verses 2 to 8. These three disciples get to see this foreshadowing of God's coming kingdom. They get to see a brief preview of Jesus' glory, which is going to be displayed and enjoyed in all of its majesty by all of Jesus' disciples when Jesus returns. Now, you can imagine the shock and the confusion and the dismay of having their hopes come crumbling down when Jesus predicted His own suffering and their own need to take up a cross in order to follow Him. And then now just consider the relief that they must have felt to see Jesus in this dazzling white, talking with two of the most famous Old Testament prophets, prophets who were themselves often rejected by people, and yet apparently who are still very much alive. I think one of the most remarkable aspects of of this passage is that Peter once again shows uh, some foolishness. He offers to build three shelters for Moses, Elijah, and and Jesus. Essentially, what Peter wants here is is he wants this glory that he's seeing to last forever. He, He wants Jesus to take his glory without first going to the cross. And then worse, he places Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But what is remarkable to me is that right after Peter's foolishness, God speaks. But God doesn't speak to rebuke. God doesn't speak this time to correct. God speaks to comfort. Just imagine they they get to hear the voice of God. 
their loving creator, the, the one they long to see. And what does he say? He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then it's over. Hush falls over them, and you can just imagine the all they must have felt in that silence when Jesus is alone, still standing there. What's going on here? Well, these men are seeing Jesus' glory as King and Son of God. And coming right after our Lord's difficult teachings, God is comforting their anxious hearts. It's like, I apologize for the Lord of the Rings reference, it's like Samwise Gamgee wakes up at the end of the Lord of the Rings, he sees a dear old friend that he thought had died, and in astonishment he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? Friends, the, the glory of Christ reminds us that Jesus is going to redeem all the sad things. The glory of Christ answers the anxiety of the cross of Christ. So don't miss the, the kindness and grace of God in allowing these three disciples to see the glory of Jesus at this exact moment in their life. Notice how the disciples' anxious hearts get comforted. The Father in heaven points them in verse 7 to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Just the comfort and validation and assurance of God's validation of Christ that they must have felt in that moment. Friends, do you want to know the secret to persevering through whatever costs come from following Jesus? Persevering stems from eyes focused on Christ, looking to Jesus, listening to Jesus, as God the Father lovingly instructs here. Now, how do we... How do we look to Jesus? How do we listen to Jesus and, and so persevere? I mean, when we experience trials and difficulties, when we experience the cost of following Him, it's not like Jesus shows up in the middle of our trials, you know, in, in, in these dazzling white garments like He does here. So how do we experience this? Well, I want you to bear with me for a moment. Let me just point you to two passages. You don't necessarily have to turn there. I just want to point you to two passages. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 to 18, says this. Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, a veil is removed, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So Paul says here that when we turn to the Lord, that is when we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we behold His glory. And we are transformed into His image, which all comes as a gift of the Lord from His Spirit. So we persevere through the cost of following Jesus by beholding the glory of Jesus, which happens as we reject sin and trust in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying there. And then one more passage. I wonder if you, you know that Peter wrote about this experience in his own letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, Peter wrote about how reassuring and important Jesus' transfiguration was to him. Let me just read that. Peter says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then Peter goes on, he says, and we, meaning all of us, all believers, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Friends, here Peter is celebrating the glories of what he saw with his own eyes. But then he says that by listening to this book, to the Bible, to God's Word, by listening to it, just as God said, had told him to listen to Jesus, Peter says we have something more certain than what he even saw with his own eyes. We have this light that will guide us to heaven. Friends, you want to persevere to heaven? Listen to Jesus. And you want to listen to Jesus? Listen to the Bible. Brothers and sisters, there, there's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to confessing Christ truly. But the crown of Jesus, the glory of Christ, makes the cost worth it. Don't be distracted and so take your eyes off the glory of Christ. Trust Jesus and listen to His Word, and He will guide you to a future more glorious than any earthly riches can buy. And that future glory is seeing Him face to face with your own eyes. I told you about my friend T, and he had a choice to make in that moment. He, he knew his options. He could abandon the faith or he could embrace the cost of following Jesus and face whatever would come. And by God's grace, he chose to follow Christ regardless of the consequences. And so we began meeting up to study the book of Philippians together in order to consider how to face persecution. Paul talks about that a lot in that letter. We wanted to know what he was likely to face himself. And a few years ago, T was called back to his hometown where he was placed in a re-education, a concentration camp, uh, which is terrible. You can read about them online. Uh, we knew what likely awaited him, and I'll never forget the night before he was set to leave. He had to go back. He knew what was coming. He sat at our table scared. There was genuine fear. We were scared with him. But you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to pray, he wanted to read God's Word together, and he wanted to sing God's Word together. We sang that beautiful hymn, many of you may know it, Be Still My Soul, which is based on Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth, the Lord Almighty is with us. And on T's last night with us, all he wanted to do was was look to Christ together, to behold His glory and sing the promises from His Word. And uh, there's an update to this story. Um, during COVID, T was released. He was, he was in this camp for a couple years, very difficult, very uh, hard. Uh, a lot of people don't make it out of these. Uh, many of them die. Uh, but he was released I uh, was allowed to return to Shanghai. I was already gone from, from Shanghai at this point, but he met with some of the members of our church, and he continues to believe in Jesus to this day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you 
that you are a God who is glorious. And we pray that you would help us, help us to trust in Christ, help us to listen to Jesus by listening to your word. And we pray that through these means, you would help us to persevere to the day that we get to see your glory fully on the day that the Lord comes back. Father, we pray that you would help us to confess Christ truly, count the cost, but also persevere to the crown. And we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.